Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor and I am President of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find the podcast of interest and we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. So welcome to the latest episode of YASP's Reach In, Reach Out podcast. And today we're going to tackle a really important topic of uh, decriminalization. And decriminalization is something that YASP and colleagues around the world have been working really hard on over recent years. And we're delighted today, we've got two really excellent guests who can speak really clearly to this and really involved in this at very many different levels. So first guest, we've got Niboy Kwarzi, and we've also got Ali Hasnain. And both of you will introduce yourselves in a second, but I just want to give a wee bit of background detail for our listeners. So for our listeners who don't know that there are still, we estimate about 20 countries around the world in which suicide is still criminalized. And although, as we'll hear in the course of today's podcast, and we're hoping this will be one of a, a series of at least two or three podcasts that will host focusing on decriminalization. But part of the reason for focusing on that, there's been a lot of global activity around decriminalization. And indeed, in the last recent months and years, a number of countries have put forward, pushed forward legislation. We'll hear about Ghana today, in particular, and other countries that Ali will be telling us about as well, where we have seen that real political impetus leading to decriminalization. So welcome both Ni and Ali to the podcast. So maybe Ni, can I start with you? Can you say a bit about who you are and a bit about your background? What brought you to where you are in your career to date? Thank you very much, Rory. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on this podcast a second time. So my name is Emmanuel Niboy Kwashi, Ni for short. I'm Ghanaian by birth and origin based in Ghana. By training, I am a community psychologist and an applied health psychologist based in the Department of Psychology in the University of Ghana in Ghana, Accra. I also, at the moment, am the president for the Association of Suicide Prevention Ghana. Basically, it's the overarching body, a uh, non-governmental organization that seeks to bring together all organizations and individuals and groups in Ghana that seek to ensure suicide prevention and intervention activities in the country. Yes, specifically in terms of the topic for today, I have been engaged in, in decriminalization programs since 2012 actively, but the whole journey towards decriminalization in Ghana began 
in the in the 1970s, but it died down along the way. Okay, I'm going to stop you there for a second, Neve. We're going to come back to the details. <laughs> I'll just do my introductions, and then we'll come back to. But before we we'll come back to the the stuff on the work dating right back to the 1970s. But just a bit about your career in terms of. So, how did you get your interest in suicide and suicide prevention come about? Thank you very much, Rory. So. Two things happened, and that started in two, between 2010 and 2011. In 2010, I was getting towards the end of my master's training in Norway, and I lost my mom. I was absent when she died. I came home to be part of her funeral. And so I went through a lot in terms of complicated grieving. And so I was seeking help because I had been introduced to psychology, and I know the importance of adequately mourning your loss so you can move on. So it was a complex situation for me. And I met other people during that stages of my life. And I mean, patients who were also equally going through complicated grief, seeking help. But I noticed that some of them were also suicidal. And I think that was what made me, if you like, different from them, because I was not feeling suicidal. Somehow I just felt unwell emotionally. And that got me a bit curious. How can you feel? You know, you. I believe that naturally we are wired to protect life. So how come you are not interested in preserving your life and you want to die? Then by 2012, just um, a year or a couple of years, I had been engaged by the Department of Psychology at the University of Ghana. I was so thinking about suicide issues. It was intriguing to me, but not in terms of research or intervention or anything. But at the Department of Psychology, I came across or I met Professor Joseph Osafo, who happens today to be with EASP and also the African uh, representative for the Live Life Project or Life Partnership Project. And then also Professor Charity Akotia, who happens to be uh, the lead for Zone 3, also for uh, EASP. Now, these two uh, amazing people invited me onto a project. They had just won a grant on assessing suicide and attitude of Ghanaian towards the law, criminalizing suicide in the country. So it was in the process of working as a research assistant to that project that my interest got, you know, if like boomed into this. And that was where I got interested in this. And since then, I've not looked back. No, no, thanks. And and obviously interesting just seeing that reflection, both of the your personal history and your bereavement, and obviously bringing bringing it together then with the professional. And and you've been making an amazing contribution. Thank you on behalf of Yas for everything that you do. And we'll go back to you in, in a second with the details then of the history of decriminalization in Ghana. So maybe Ali, if I move on to you, can and obviously it'd be great to hear a bit about your background. Obviously, I know you're you're involved, obviously, with United for Global Mental Health, and and obviously you're the co-chair of the Suicide Decriminalization Working Group for uh, Global Mental Health Action Network with Catherine Thompson, our very own Catherine Thompson in Yas. So maybe could you tell us a bit about your journey and how where you how you got to where you are, Ali? Yeah, I'd love to, but I would be remiss not to say before I start that it is an absolute pleasure working with Catherine Thompson and the ISP as a co-chair of the Suicide Working Group. I'm very proud of being that and being a part of the Global Mental Health Action Network. So I am based out of Pakistan. I actually have a legal background, but I am a person with lived experience of mental health conditions. And there was a time in my life where those mental health conditions made it very difficult for me to do my everyday legal jobs. 
And it sort of motivated me to try and get into the advocacy space and change the circumstances because where I come from, my part of the world, Pakistan, other low and middle income countries, uh, there aren't a lot of provisions for mental health services. There's not a lot of suicide helplines and support either. So a lot of work needed to be done. So I joined this organization in Pakistan called the Skin Health Initiative, who I think you'll be familiar with. I'm quite proud that they were very instrumental in the decriminalization process in Pakistan. So they were kind of my entry point. And then from there, I joined United for Global Mental Health. Um, there's the ability to influence broader, broader impact in different countries. And then with my legal background and with my own association, mental health, suicide as well, it made so much sense to really focus my attention work on suicides and the decriminalization of suicide. So I'm trying to use the best from my past, merge it with my current direction and make the most of it. Fantastic. A really succinct history of your, of your uh, life to date, so to speak, in professional and personal. Really appreciate that, Ali. Um, okay, so we'll come back to you in a second, Ali, with the Pakistan more international focus as well. And maybe you you started to tell us a bit about the journey and just to maybe just for a listener's point of view, maybe start by telling us when Ghana decriminalized very, very recent suicide. And you started to tell us about that journey going back to the 70s of the process, the journey to led, led to that really important achievement. Thank you very much, Rory. So, yes, Ghana's journey towards decriminalization began, like I intimated earlier, in the 1970s. By then, I wasn't born, obviously. <laughs> but, of course, I came to read about... I wasn't long born. I wasn't long born. <laughs> okay. I was born in the 70s. <laughs> so so then, it, it was a, a battle that was sort of pushed, or those at the forefront of that battle were basically medical people, medical doctors, pathologists, and so on. Uh, just a few of them who had done some research, they, they did some analysis of clinical cases and so on, and they thought that the law could be implicated for for these cases or the cases that they were seeing. But that was just about it. There wasn't any massive public advocacy and all of these social action towards the purpose of decriminalization. And so way through the 60s, I mean, um, to the 80s, all the way to the early 90s, to the, the end of the 90s, uh, there wasn't much, you know, it, it, it's sort of dormant until after 2006 or about. So by 2008, Professor Charity Akutia, uh, Joseph Osako had come on the scene. And so they were doing some more research, trying to understand the context, you know, why suicide, what are the attitudes of the Ghanaian people towards suicide and so on. Then by 2010, some of us had been brought on as well. And so we started growing in terms of our numbers to lead that fight. So what we did at the beginning, and by the beginning, I mean, in between 2010 and 2011, was to put together a petition to the Parliament of Ghana pushing for the decriminalization of attempted suicide. Basically, what we did was to put together the, the um, few, you know, if you like, pieces of evidence that we had gathered and then draw on WHO reports and other global, you know, evidence around and add to our petition. We submitted that, but the Parliament of Ghana would not give us any formal response. Because apparently the, the thinking was that we were pushing for a grand agenda and our petition did not carry any weight. That petition taught us two lessons that 
to push for decriminalization, we need to one understand the context of suicide mm -hmm. in 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 the country. We need to understand the culture. We need to understand the people, their position on the behavior, and so on. So we started gathering data and, and publishing our research on attitudes towards suicide and suicidal persons, and also attitudes towards the law. And, and here we, we did basically among, or we engaged key stakeholders in, in those studies. We did with persons who had lived with uh, or survived suicide and those who have been left behind due to suicide bereavement. And then the police, we did with other key stakeholders and, and community leaders. Then what we did was to put together another petition, this time thinking that, okay, we had built some tool of evidence. Now, the second lesson there was that apart from understanding the context uh, within which suicide occurs, it was also important to understand or allow or create the room to engage the voices and views of the key stakeholders who matter. So mm -hmm. we have the police, we have the lawyers, we have members of parliament, we have survivors or persons with lived experience of the behavior and so on. We need to engage their voices. So as researchers, we shouldn't be sitting there and then just you know, profile our own solutions. We need yeah. to draw on the voices of these key people. And so we did that. Can I just jump in there? Uh, no, it's a fascinating process, really systematic and to say wide engagement. But see the petition that you talked about, which goes to Parliament, is that a formal instrument of government? Is it that is that how you try and get laws changed in Ghana? That or, or, or do you have to have right. a certain number of votes or, or not votes of like in the UK, like you can if a certain number of people sign the petition, if it's over, I think it is 10,000 or hundred thousand, I think it's a hundred thousand, it has to be discussed in Parliament. Is it the same sort of idea in, in Ghana okay. or Right. So first of all, before I answer that question, let me make a quick point about the history of the anti-suicide law that Ghana had. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yes, that was bequeathed to us through British colonial rule in 1960. And, you know, as you may be aware, paradoxically, in 1961, uh, suicide was, was decriminalized in, in England and Wales, but we kept it until early part of this year. And so, yes, so to, to in response to the, the question, so Ghana runs the parliamentary system. And so if you want to make a law or change an existing law, you first of all will have to convince the majority of parliaments. Mm -hmm. So there are about 373 or 75 seats. And we have to ensure that majority of these people agree to whichever direction we want to go. And then it goes for presidential assent, and then we have it uh, as law or whether we want to repeal it. So that was the process. So we needed to engage with parliament because they are the representative of the people. And that is where laws are made, at least mm -hmm. in our local, I mean, our uh, judicial system. So by 2012, we had made the first submission of petition then after we got we got no formal feedback, but based on our own reflections and other informal engagement with some members of parliament, we got to know that we needed to engage with the context and needed to get the voices of key people. So by 2017, what we did was to bring together a key stakeholder forum where we brought in one place all the people we thought mattered 
in terms of the issue of suicide and, and its uh, decriminalization in our country. So media people, the police, uh, lawyers and judges, medical people, mental health professionals, persons with lived experiences, NGOs and so on. And so we had some really lengthy deliberations. In that forum, we shared with them all the evidence we had gathered way from 2008 up mm -hmm. to 2017. And the conclusion was that we needed to put in another petition because at that point we had gathered enough evidence or relatively you know, good amount of evidence to, to push for any change that we wanted. And I mean, giving all of these key people in that space, it was, it was good to take advantage of that idea. And so we put together a second petition, handed over to parliament and this time, we were able to strike a good court and parliaments got the petition and gave us some audience. Uh, we were invited and engaged by the parliamentary select committee on health. Now, what happened was that it was okay. People were convinced that, look, this thing must go. The law must be repealed. Mm -hmm. But at that point, we faced a strong opposition and that opposition was mainly led by two important people in parliaments, the leader on the majority side and the leader on the minority side. Okay. And these, these were and are very respected personalities. But the majority side, the leader was a very respected lawyer. And on the minority side, also a very respected lawyer and a sociologist you know, who had read about, you know, Emil Deckheim and so on and things yeah. like that. So <laughs> somehow, because he had following also, his arguments uh, got down well with people and so on. And so it was one thing that really was a huge punch to us. But we, we didn't relent at all. We we kept engaging and lobbying with other... But what, but, but what, was, their, what was their objections? Did they, what, did, did they tell you what their, their objections were? What, were the, what was the punch? Yes, I think that's a very important question. Uh, I think it was mainly based on their experiences. And as you will be, as you'll be aware, most of our politicians operate on intuition. So the thinking they had was that, look, so for example, the majority leader, he said that, well, I have been practicing over 30 years as a lawyer and suicide cases barely come to the court. And even if they do, we don't really punish uh, these corporates. And our response was that, well, there are clear evidence. And our own research at the time was showing that there are cases and police records were also showing that people have been jailed and in some cases, mm -hmm. given hefty fines for having attempted suicide. And so that's that's sort of also knocked down his arguments. Yeah, yeah. And, and then on the side of the minority leader, who was also a sociologist, at least trained to the master's level, we engaged with him privately and presented our debates. The fresh evidence we have made him understand that his understanding of suicide from the perspectives of Emil Durkheim may not necessarily apply in today's world. And so it's really important to engage with the recent evidence. Yeah. Interestingly, in less than 48 hours, he came out and made a public apology. Wow. Yes. And so uh -huh. some of these things give us really, uh, put us in a very good spirit to, to keep engaging and pushing. So yes, that, that moved us towards 2019. 
we had presented a second petition in 2017. We had gotten audience between 18 and 19. And so we were looking at parliament, what was the next action to take? It wasn't clear to us. And at the time, we also had no better understanding of how things could work in the parliamentary system. So we started engaging with other people. But certain things happened. They were unfortunate incidents, but somehow they worked for us. We got the nudge to engage someone in parliament who could be a champion of our cause. Yeah. It wasn't clear who that person could be. I don't know whether it's just, I don't know how to describe it, but somehow in 2000, between 2017 and 18, there were a lot of reports in our local media about the occurrence of suicide among our young people in universities and senior high schools. And unfortunately, it happened that one of the key personalities in parliament who happened to be the leader of the uh, of the legal and constitutional committee lost his daughter to suicide, who happened to be, I think, the first daughter in university, first year university. And at that personal level, he also was struggling yeah. with, with the loss and he didn't know what to do. In fact, I think that loss brought him into conflict, you know, because you're a lawmaker and suicide is a crime and you want to go public and speak about it, be an advocate. That was a difficult thing for him. So I think luckily for him, or and these are things that he shared with us, his own reflections, that when we came in with our petition at the time when he was also going through the pain of his loss and wanted to move public to see how he can make a change, he was very happy. And so quickly we had to join forces. Yeah. And he said he was going to be part of this um, fight. So immediately he engaged with his committee and we had, I think, three additional personalities from his committee who are also known to be human rights lawyers and very vocal and active in that space. And so the advice we were giving was that the best option would be not to present a third petition, but to see if we can explore the possibility of presenting a private member's bill or a public bill. Obviously, this will not be a public bill. So we're a public bill. So we need a private member's bill. Then this leader, who is uh, by name Honorable Ayimedu Enchi, he decided to sponsor that private member's bill and his colleagues, the three other colleagues, also joined him and they, they drafted the bill. It went back and forth, finalized and presented to parliament. Now in Ghana, once you have, whether a private or a public bill, what will happen is that it must go through three readings and the first reading will be done definitely, or most likely there'll be some corrections and amendments. And then the second reading, the same process. And then the third reading, Hopefully, by then, there won't be any significant corrections to make or amendment. Then it will be approved. And once that approval is made, what it means is that Parliament has accepted this and it will be passed on to presidential assent, which is just a formality. And we went through this. And thankfully, on the 28th of March, 2023, the Parliament of Ghana passed we had the third reading. There were no objections at all, and everybody agreed to it, and that was accepted. And this amendment means that as we speak today in Ghana, if somebody 
attempt suicide, the law will see it as a mental health issue requiring assistance, but not prosecution. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. 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 Well, fantastic. And what what it highlights, though, is a number of things is obviously that these things don't happen overnight. And as you say, that long history, but also often the role of serendipity and the of certain events coming together. In this case, sadly, obviously, that personal advocacy through loss of that really influential person. So... Nia, I mean, so I mean, remarkable work. I know it's not just you; a whole number of you in Ghana. Really, really, really fantastic. And maybe I'll come back to you after we check in with Ali here about the um, what's going on in Pakistan and elsewhere. But maybe for lessons learned, as we think to those other countries, twenty countries where, uh, where decriminalisation is yet to happen. So, Ali, then moving on, then. So, can you maybe tell us about obviously what's happened recently in, in Pakistan? Obviously, there was a in December last year, great news about I think the repeal of uh, Section three two five or whatever it was of the Pakistan Penal Code. So you can tell us a bit about that, and then also more broadly, because I know you're really well steeped in this in the context of your other roles. Sure, I'd be happy to talk about it. So, like you mentioned, Pakistan decriminalized suicide uh, last December, and it was excellent. But actually, the process first started almost all the way back in 2017. There was actually a private member's bill that was pushed at the time, but it was rejected on a variety of grounds, some of which Ni has also touched upon. But one of the overarching themes at the time was that in Pakistan, A, this kind of law would be considered un-Islamic. So it would be against religion, the majority religion in the region. And this is obviously an issue that will plague a lot of different advocates in different countries where religion is a primary crux. Um, and then there was also an argument around the fact that this law that criminalizes suicide can potentially act as a deterrent and therefore keep suicide rates down. This is a common misconception, I feel personally at least, that a lot of lawmakers in different countries have. And there is now WHO research also that suggests that that is not the case, in fact. So these were the grounds on which it was initially denied in 2017. But then in 2021, like I mentioned before, the organization I used to work for, the Skin Health Initiative, did some excellent work to onsite a parliamentarian in the Senate committee, uh, Senator Shahada Dawan. He was with one of the opposition parties at the time that are fairly progressive. And they did a lot of great work in the background. He also came on to one of our mental health for all webinars that the Global Mental Health Action Network puts together. And they managed to convince him to champion the bill. And at the time, I think for him, it was an opportunity to do something progressive and human rights oriented. Mm -hmm. But he did that. He put the bill in parliament. Initially, there was a lot of resistance to the bill. So there were official statements from the more conservative parties that it goes against Islam, um, that the deterrence factor will come into play. But I think the senator did a very, very good job of like navigating that by maybe individually as well, going to specific policymakers, bringing them on side, utilizing his relationships. So that was very helpful. And then I I would be, I think I would have to mention that The Guardian also played an excellent role in this. So obviously international media, and again, this is something maybe that other countries can also pick up on because of their influence, especially in several low-minimum countries, considering them to be a very reputable media outlet and one that 
I think they would all love to be quoted by. So The Guardian did a feature piece in Pakistan capturing different stakeholders' perspectives, like persons with lived experience, psychologists, psychiatrists, CSOs, on the laws and the wider questions around deterrence and morality, et cetera, et cetera. That was very well received in the country and in parliament as well. So the senator made a point of sharing that feature with all of the parliamentarians that he thought could be roadblocks. I thought that was a very intelligent thing that was done. Just yeah. to jump in there, sorry. So in terms of how did the Guardian piece come about? Did somebody get in, get in touch with the Guardian to stimulate this or was it just fortuitous? Yeah. So I, you, I think... You, you uh, may not know, though. <laughs> no, um, so... My colleague at United for Global Mental Health, Claire, is very well connected with several individuals within The Guardian, and she sort of put us together with a conversation. We talked a little bit about the excellent work our partners in Pakistan were doing, and they got curious about it. So we put them in touch with Taskeen, and then Taskeen took it from there and put them in touch with a variety of stakeholders. And they were more than happy to cover the news. I feel like suicide and even the decriminalization of suicide is an issue that I think a lot of these media outlets are very, very interested in covering because yeah. it has quite an appeal to audiences. So yeah, so that happened. And then after that, Taskeen helped the parliamentarian to develop sort of the counter arguments and the research to go against the idea that suicide acts as a deterrent. So they provided him the counter arguments for that. For the religious side, there was still a bit of a hurdle because I think you might be aware, but Pakistan has a council of Islamic ideology that works in consonance with the parliament. And anytime a bill is to be passed, they are asked for comment on it. So they are a part of the official process, though it's not binding. Obviously, they have sway. So their initial response to the bill was that this will go against the tenets of Islam and therefore should not be passed. So then again, I need to credit the scheme for some excellent back-channel advocacy work directly with the council, with influential people. And one thing that they did was that they also got like a counter-narrative from other religious leaders of influence to say that it didn't go against Islamic tenant for this decriminalization to take place. So they neutralized the Council of Islamic Ideology really well. And then the bill... What argument did they use? How did they argue that it didn't go against the tenets of Islam? So basically, the Islam doesn't necessarily specifically say that we need to criminalize this act. Islam yeah. and most religions say that, you know, suicide should not occur and suicide is not a good thing. And I guess the angle that was taken, and they might be better placed than me to articulate this better, but the argument is that we're both working for the same end goal, which is the reduction of suicide rates. And really, the evidence suggests that by decriminalizing, reducing the stigma, letting people accessing the help and support they need in an emergency situation, you are increasing their chances of not committing suicide or not not actioning suicide, rather, shouldn't say commit. So then they started to see it from that lens and realized, yes. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you you there. You were on the roller alley of so then, so to, to tell us the, the end of that process then was led to the yeah. move in December last year. So it passed in the Senate, then it uh, came down again to the National Assembly. And again, it was about strategically engaging stakeholders within that. And the senator again played a massive role in onsiting people. It passed there, then it got the requisite presidential assent. It was held up there for a bit with the president's office. But again, I think the scheme did a good job of just they find a way to knock down the doors of everyone that's important. So they made it to the president's office somehow and just made sure that he signed it in time. And here we are now. <laughs> and we're having yeah great discussions now and hopefully well, a, putting national suicide prevention strategies in place. Yeah, no, that's what I was going to ask. So, what, so in terms of tangible outcomes then, 
as brilliant as being decriminalised. So, but so so then, the, do you think it has opened up conversations? It has started to tackle the issue of stigma. I think so. Yes, there was a very good public information campaign that the scheme ran for about a year, year and a half around suicide in general. But I think the decriminalization of suicide really opens the door for discussion on the issue because for a change now, this is an issue that is being viewed from a public health lens rather than the lens of being a legal issue or a criminal issue. And that makes it more favorable and palatable for both policymakers and society. But then the biggest thing is now, one of the hurdles in a country where suicide is a crime is that you can't really get the accounts of people with lived experience of suicide. Mm -hmm. And they are such powerful advocates and important voices in the issue. So now those people can come forward, share their issues, share why they do and what they need, what kind of support they need. And then at the same time, like even crisis helplines in Pakistan, I'm hoping will grow incredibly on the back of this because, I mean, they don't, like it'll be easier for people to reach out to them, but then they can also actively promote themselves. So I'm hoping that a lot of this will happen. And then the government, because one of their questions throughout the process was, if not this, this, then what? Yeah. And I think the answer to that is national suicide prevention strategy. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll head in that direction. Yeah. And then, so just before I head back to Nia again, so Ali, though, thinking now with the other work in terms of the United for Global Mental Health is doing, so what progress has been made in those other countries, as we mentioned, those 20 countries or so? Can you say a bit about your knowledge of that landscape? Absolutely. So in addition to Pakistan and Ghana, obviously, we had Malaysia decriminalized in June 2023. Uh, Guyana did so as well in November 2022. So that's four in the last eight months, which is fantastic. In addition to that, I can say that there is some exciting work happening now in a lot of African countries. So a lot of them have taken the Ghana news very, very favorably and are trying to use that to influence their own parliaments to change as well. So Uganda is a country where this is happening. Advocates have put in a constitutional petition in legal courts to challenge the constitutionality of the law that is there in Uganda. There's a similar court case happening in Kenya as well. But at the same time, in both countries, there are also parallel conversations happening with parliament around the issue. Nigeria passed a new National Mental Health Act, as you know. And a big part of that act is Uh, developing a national suicide prevention strategy. So they've been having meetings in Nigeria on developing a framework. And within that, it is very heartening to see that the decriminalization of suicide is a part of that agenda. So it's being discussed now at a Ministry of Health level between CSOs, and hopefully there will be champions in Parliament that will try and action that. And then there's also been some advocacy in Bangladesh as well. Mm-hmm. And then at a global level, I would just add that there was a recent ministerial conference at the Small Island Developing States. It was on NCDs and mental health. And that led to a bridge down declaration of 2023. I missed that. I think you put uh, up a bit there. That led to what? The bridge down declaration of 2023. I, I'll share a link as well, perhaps that you can disseminate. They committed to the decriminalization of suicide in small island developing states. And there are about five of them where suicide is a crime. So that's a very, very positive thing. I mean, that's huge progress. But what's remarkable is how it seems to have gathered pace in the last, you've mentioned obviously four countries in decriminalizing in the last eight months. So have we any sense, maybe if we go back to Neve this, have we any sense of why there seems to have been this is it just that we're, we've now built up this such momentum 
that there is a step change in trying to decriminalize with this huge successes in these countries? Or have you some sense of why that's changed? Yes, thank you very much, Rory. I, I think Ali made a very important point about looking at this issue of suicide within a public health lens. Then politicians who want to listen to you. And what I think is important there is a recent report by the WHO that Africa is in the lead when it comes to suicidal issues. And clearly, it's, it's a problem for African leaders. They don't want to hear this. And it means they have to do something about it. And I'm happy to connect what the latter part of Ali's um, responses to the next thing I want to say, that in terms of keeping up with the momentum, yeah. uh, a couple of months ago, I met with the lead of the Africa uh, Centers for Disease and Prevention, uh, Africa CDC in Namibia. It was a lifeline international program for all African organization members um, held in Namibia. And as part of the various presentations, I shared our journey of, of, of success in terms of decriminalization. And I threw the challenge to the lead uh, from the Africa CDC. I thought that, look, this is a huge body on the continent. And every year we sit here and uh, it can be a bit troubling that it, it takes the WHO to let us know what is happening in our continent. Yet, this is a body that is supposed to do this. And it was clear that there's a problem. And Africa CDC has no data at all about suicide on the continent, not even self-harm. I mean, nothing. Yeah. It only has data on the NCDs, as usual, as we know, the medical issues. But mental health, there's a problem. But thankfully, on that day, we we all agreed that we need to join forces and begin this, this journey. Because my thinking, and this is something I shared with him, that look, if Africa CDC is at the top and has the opportunity of engaging with heads of member states, clearly there's a lot we can do towards decriminalization, for example. And so I was given the assurance that CDC, Africa CDC is going to take this up. And interestingly, just last week, Africa CDC was in Accra, Ghana. Myself and Professor Joseph Osafo, we joined the meeting. We were invited to be part of it. There were several African countries that were represented, including uh, those that Ali mentioned, Nigeria, Uganda, Morocco, and, and so on. And what happened was that on top of the agenda was decriminalization. And Ghana's example was just number one. It doesn't mean everybody should adopt it. At least let's see how we can take some of the lessons and then adapt them to our unique countries and see mm -hmm. how we can drive this. But clearly, Africa CDC is bent on pushing this. And I I'm also happy to announce that able to introduce Africa CDC to uh, Wendy Orchard, who happens to be the executive director of EASP. Mm -hmm. And we've had a meeting already, and the plans are getting uh, clarified that we need to do something. And so I believe that. In addition to the work that the Global Mental Health Action Network is doing and then EAS and, and the other groups like um, LLI, we can all join forces, particularly with the Africa CDC, because mm -hmm. it has that overarching power. Yeah, yeah. And then we can we can let the influence trickle down. They are planning that in the next two years, uh, latest, they're going to engage all head of states, particularly on on this issue about suicide prevention, particularly decriminalization. And what they want to do within the interim, I mean, before the end, uh, before the two years, is that between now 
So then uh, they're going to engage countries like Ghana, Nigeria, and so on. So we can help other countries. So we can help them. I mean, Africa CDC build a database and sort of begin getting in place some surveillance system because with the data, they will be able to influence um, heads of member states and see how we can champion this agenda. So yes, the momentum is building. And I think that at this stage, it is rather about to start building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really exciting and, and really a groundbreaking time, I think. So, uh, so thanks for that, for that update. We're sort of coming towards the end of, of the podcast here. So Ali, can I go back to you and just say, so that was really helpful for the sort of lessons learned and how we can hopefully, the, the lessons that other countries can hopefully build upon your experiences and experiences of other countries recent in recent years. Ali, any sort of key kernels of wisdom you think are key aspects or key learnings that we can trickle down to other countries or, or support other countries? Um, absolutely. So I think some of the things that can be learned by other advocates and other policymakers in different countries looking to decriminalize now is that in a lot of parliaments, the conversations have been very similar. And all of the arguments that are likely to come up, like about law acting as a deterrent, about religious, moral, cultural reasons and other reasons have already been addressed in different contexts. So it is important for people to try to work together with other advocates like me, like our partners in Malaysia, for example, who have crossed this bridge to try and learn what arguments they use, what resources they use, what research they utilize, and obviously trying to replicate that within their own context, which mm-hmm. obviously will be different. So, so that is one important aspect of it. Another big learning really is around navigating the public. And I think this is a conversation we've been having a lot in the Suicide Working Group of the Action Network as well, around how in some instances, the public and the public opinion can be an ally, but then it can also go against you if mm-hmm. you know they're not effectively sensitized and that stigma still exists. So being strategic in how you navigate the public. And I think the skin again, are a very good example where they didn't necessarily do a lot of background public awareness work on the law and the changing of the law, but rather on the act of suicide. So it was a good balance. And then the use of the media as well on which the WHO is also going to be launching a brief very soon, both on decriminalization and engaging the media and the media's reporting of suicide. So a lot of learnings on these areas can be taken from other partners that have successfully decriminalized suicide. And it's important, I think, for people to talk to them as much as possible. Yeah, and I suppose that we all have a role as well to disseminate the information about the precedents that have been set and how these arguments have been challenged. I think all our organizations, I think, are doing that. And I think we just need to redouble our efforts, I suppose. Okay, so one last just sort of roundup question, unless there's any, have you any burning issues that you were hoping to cover that I haven't asked about either of you, me or Ali? No? I could very briefly speak to like any, like the what comes next part of it, if you like, but although okay. I feel like the yeah, IAS, yeah, the yeah, no, no problem far away with what comes next yeah so i think the biggest thing for me would be to point out that the national suicide prevention strategies and the development implementation of them is so so important because decriminalization is not the end goal it is the first step in what should if, if eventually be an effective efficient and accessible access to support for people who are you know ideating or have attempted suicide so it, it's step one and then Initiatives like the IASP's Partnerships for Life, for example, is so, so important. It's great work at the country level. 
on trying to get national suicide prevention strategies in place. Then the big other aspect that immediately needs to be addressed once you've decriminalized is the stigma and discrimination that people with mental health conditions face. There's obviously the Lancet Commission on Stigma and Discrimination. It's an incredible resource. And it's important for people to tackle it head on at the community level, in the healthcare sector as well, because there has been this institutionalized stigma in healthcare. And particularly, I mean, for a while, there was the law that made it difficult for people in places like hospitals to provide care to these people. The police has to be sensitized as well. So a lot of that work has to be ongoing. And I know Nee did a lot of that work before the law was changed in Ghana, and it's brilliant for having done so. So I would definitely encourage people to talk to Nee about it as much as they can and learn from him. But yeah, that is an ongoing process that has to happen. And one other thing, last thing, I guess, that I would say is right now, I think everywhere in the world, maybe there can be more crisis support services like helplines. And hopefully those can be backed by governments as well. I know Pakistan is launching a national helpline, but we need to have more of those. And we need to also spend a little bit on collecting accurate data so we know the scale of the problem. And with the law no longer being in place, hopefully that can also be prioritized so we know what we're dealing with. Well, fantastic. That's fantastic, Ali. And are you trying to come in there? Yes, I wanted to say something quickly in addition to what Ali has said. I just want to make the point that you made earlier on that, look, this journey towards decriminalization is one that we need to see as a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. This is important because even after the decriminalization, like our case, yes, in the law books, it has, the law has been repealed. But it doesn't stop there. For me, this is when we rather need to start work because we have been brought to ground zero to start. What will happen next, and we are vigilant about this, is that because the law has been repealed, it means that it's going to create space relatively for people experiencing suicidal crisis to come out, seek help, and so on. What that also means that we're going to have the data on attempted suicide and self-harm going up, possibly going through the roofs. Mm -hmm. And there will be that tendency on the part of the politician to say, no, we need to recriminalize this, you know. And so for us not to go back again, some of us are very vigilant to be sure that we help with the interpretation of the aftermath, Mm -hmm. you know, the appropriate interpretation of it. What it means is simply is that, look, People have been kept in the in the background. The law kept them, prevented them from reporting and from seeking help. Now that the law is out of the way, they are just coming out. It doesn't necessarily mean that because we have repealed the, the, the law, people are now having the freedom to engage in suicidal behaviors. So th- this is just the point I want to make that, look, it is a marathon that is not a, sp- a sprint. Even after the decriminalization, you still need to hold the fort and keep fighting. Yeah, no, I think that's a, two really important points, especially that latter point about, yeah, one of the consequences may be in the short term you see an increase in suicidal behaviour. But in the field, we know that any activity which d- challenges stigma, often one of the sort of unexpected, well, we now know it is expected outcome, is you do see people, because the stigma has been challenged, or if there's a better care pathway um, and getting better support, that people are, are going to use it. That is a success not a failure. And we need to be care- exactly so important that all of us involved in suicide prevention are, are around to, to tell that narrative. So it's seen as a step forward rather than a step back. So brilliant. And what this highlights, this conversation highlights is 
the importance of why or why we're doing more than one podcast on decriminalization because there's so so much to talk about. So just in the last couple of minutes, I just want to ask you each one last question. So Ali, I'll start with you. Who's your sort of forward-looking lens? Like, what are your ask? Let's look ahead for to for fifty years. So, what? Where would you like us to be in fifty years? Of course, all of us want a world without suicide, but maybe in more practical or in sort of action-oriented steps, where would you like us to, to be in fifty years as a field? So, I'm an inherently optimistic person, um, and based on the current trends, that in the last eight months we've had four countries decriminalize, and we are knocking down the numbers, and we've gone hopefully below 20 now and we're getting closer i would hope that in 50 years uh we can be talking about a world where suicide is no longer a crime and hopefully in a lot of countries in that world there will be national suicide prevention plans in place and hopefully many of them will be also being implemented great no that's a fantastic aspiration need the same for you thank you yes in addition to what alia said i'm not that old but growing up in Ghana, when the issue about HIV prevention came to the public space, I just want to draw that lesson from there. You can't, you couldn't talk about condom use. You couldn't talk about uh, contraception because these were religiously abhorred and they were socially prescribed and so on. Today, as we speak, we've not even crossed 50 years. And I mean, it's it become subjects of public conversation and private conversation, at least in my country. And I believe it is happening elsewhere as well. And so, and so yes, 50 years to come, my other expectation will be that, look, uh, conversation around suicide will be just as we talk about malaria, just as we talk about mm-hmm. HIV and so on today. And so people don't um, self-stigmatize or are not socially stigmatized either. And they are all, um, all of these um, institutional, institutionalized stigmatization, all of these things should be lost and, and people are free to seek help because their proper structures are in place. And of course, our research has got into a stage where we are able to translate whatever we find into improving the lives of people who may be relatively vulnerable to suicidality. Thanks so much, Nia and Ali. Really optimistic way to end the podcast. And, and I think that we have reason to be optimistic. I think have made a remarkable progress in recent years, specifically in decriminalization. And and then it's, it's that aftermath and, 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 and how we continue to support challenge stigma, promote help seeking, and obviously have a world without suicide and certainly a world where people, nobody is criminalized for suicide. So on behalf of YAS, thanks a million for the work that you do both and for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Rory. It was a genuine pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Take care and thanks for listening, everybody.